Uh, this is the first Sunday of Advent, friends. Uh, and Advent is that season in which, as Mark explained to us, we think a little more uh, consciously and in, in, uh, in intensively uh, about the coming of Jesus Christ, both His second coming when He will return, but also about His first coming when He came into the world as a little baby so many centuries ago. Uh, we celebrate the incarnation. Advent means appearing, the appearing of Jesus. And typically, when you want to uh, think about the coming of Jesus uh, in, in history, you want to go to, like, the Gospel of Matthew, where you get the cool story of the Magi coming to see Jesus and bringing the gifts of frankincense and incense and myrrh and this kind of stuff. And, or you go to Luke, especially Luke. Luke is a favorite because you get the angels and the shepherds. And, you know, if you've ever watched a Charlie Brown Christmas, Linus always gets up and he, he reads from, from that passage. And it's just so beautiful and heartwarming. Uh, we are going to actually look at John's account of the first coming of Jesus Christ over the next few weeks. And this is why we're going to do that. If you were to make a list of the most influential people in history, probably on that list you'd have people like uh, Aristotle, Muhammad, uh, Buddha, Isaac Newton, um, who else would you have? Throw out a name. Pardon me? Einstein? Lincoln? Mother Teresa? Anybody want to say Jesus Christ? <laughs> Jesus, there you go. He would certainly be on the list of most influential people in history, right? And he might not be in everybody's top five, but he would certainly be in everybody's top ten. You can't discount that, whether you're a believer or not. Uh, you know that Jesus had an incredible influence on history, just like all these other figures that we threw out. But here's the difference. If you take that list and you say, who on that list said that they were God, there's only one name on that list that would, would fit, and that's Jesus Christ. Muhammad said... I'm not God, I am God's spokesperson. B Buddha said, I am not God, I, I have shown you the way to transcendence. Of course, people like Newton and Aristotle and these other people that we have mentioned, they didn't say they were God. When people tried to worship Jesus, he didn't say, no, 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 don't worship me, I'm a man like you. He said, bring it on, it is right and fitting for you to worship me. Which means that one of the most important questions a human being has to wrestle with, maybe the most important question that a human being has to wrestle with, is the question, who is Jesus Christ? Is He God or is He not? See, if He's not, okay, that means you can sort of go on and live your life and do things the way you want to do them. Uh, but if He is... Well, then that demands a response from you. That means that you have to, to reckon with what to do with this claim that Jesus makes as the Son of God. And the reason we are going to look at the uh, appearing of Christ, the incarnation of Christ from the gospel according to John is because John, more than any of the other gospel writers, knew Jesus intimately. He is the beloved disciple, right? He's the disciple who, who at the last, last Supper was reclining on the breast of Jesus. They were such close friends. 
He's the one that in uh, church history, when the apostles are um, depicted as various animals, he's the one who is depicted as an eagle because the eagle was understood to be the, the, the bird that could fly closest to the sun without getting blinded. And so, John, the apostle, he had this special relationship with Jesus Christ that, that led him to speak of Jesus' incarnation in a way that is different from the other gospel writers. We're going to look at what John has to say about who this Jesus is. You'll notice that, that when you look at uh, the beginning of Matthew, he begins with Jesus' genealogy going all the way back to Abraham, the first, the father of the Jewish people. When you look at the gospel of Luke, Luke goes all the way back to Adam uh, in his genealogy of where Jesus come from. But John, he doesn't go back to Adam, he doesn't, or sorry, Abraham, and he doesn't go back to Adam, he goes all the way back to the beginning. He says in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And that is meant to be an echo of the very first book of the Bible, Genesis 1, chapter 1, that's, Genesis 1, verse 1, that says, in the beginning was God. In the beginning, God. That's Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. That's John 1, 1. Jo the, uh, the Apostle John, what he's doing is, is he's saying that there is a, a, a beginning to Jesus that goes, that, that happens before time. That Jesus is actually uncreated. That he, he existed in a time before time itself. Jesus is the uncreated creator. And he uses this word, word, to describe who Jesus is. That's a, the Greek word, logos. Now, why does he do that? Well, John is also the gospel writer who wrote his gospel later than all the other gospel writers. So he wrote his gospel probably around 90 AD or so. He lived a really long time. And he wrote this, this gospel very late. And by that time, the church was no longer made up primarily of Jews that had converted to Christianity. It was made up of both Jews that had converted to Christianity and Greeks that had converted to Christianity. So it was a mixed, very mixed church by that time. And John is trying to convince both Jews and Greeks that this Jesus is the one that they've been looking for. They've both been looking for different things, but Jesus fulfills the thing that both of them are looking for. He, he uses this word logos to say that Jesus is both the author of life and the rationale for life. In that one word, he speaks to both groups' needs. Now, what we're going to do for the next few minutes, is we're just going to unpack that one word. This is a sermon on a word. Talk about expositional preaching, eh? <laughs> we're going to think through what the implications are the, of John saying that Jesus is the Logos, the Word. Okay, first of all, He is the author of life. That's what John means by this. Now, the Jews, for the Jews, the spoken word was not just sound coming out of a mouth, going over your tongue and out into the air. 
the spoken word to the Jews was, was a thing in itself. It was the creative power of God. So when you go back to Genesis 1, you read that God said, let there be bam, and it was, right? Let there be light, boom, there's light. Let there be land, boom, there's land. Let there be whatever, and there it is. So God's Word had this creative power, this ability to to shape things into being. And so for the Jews, the Word was far more than just mere sound. It was was something that had an independent existence and, and actually got things done, made things happen. So, for example, in uh, Psalm 33, verse 6, we read this. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of His mouth. And in Isaiah 55, verse 11, it says this. So, it is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. And John is taking up this concept of the word and he's saying to the Jews, you want to see the creative power of God? You want to see that word that actually made the universe, brought everything into existence, look at Jesus. He is that Word. And that's why he says in verse 14, for example, he says, the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And of course, we know verse 3, that tongue twister of a, of a verse that uh, Mike read to us, through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, John's not the only one who's picking up on this, okay? The Apostle Paul says very similar things about Jesus in Colossians 1, where he says this about Jesus. He says, for in him, speaking about Jesus, this is verses 16 and 17, in him All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things. You hear that? He's before all things. Before anything there was, He was. That's what He's saying. He is before all things, and in Him, He says, in Him all things hold together. So, to the Jews, John was saying the power of God, the creative power of God, the one, the one who threw everything, made everything be, who, who flung the universe into existence, that power is manifested and personified in this person you know as Jesus of Nazareth. Now, it is because... Jesus is the author of life. That is the answer to the Jewish question. What is the power of God? Where is the power of God? He is also the rationale for life. The answer to the Greek question, which is, what is the organizing principle of reality? Now, you might go, what on earth are you talking about? We're talking philosophy here, and oftentimes philosophy, honestly, sometimes you're like, what is the point of this? There's actually a point to this philosophy, so stick with me, okay? Stick with me. The Greeks, for many centuries, had a problem that they were wrestling with. Greeks were smart people, okay? 
And they looked at the universe, and they saw order in the universe. They saw order in the planets and that kind of stuff. They saw, they saw patterns in uh, physics. They came up with mathematical uh, principles that explained certain phenomena in the, the world and these patterns and things, they, they kept, uh, you know, they, they, they were repeatable. They kept happening over and over and over again. You know, Archimedes, do you know who Archimedes is? He's the guy, apparently, he's like sitting in the tub and the water splashes out of the tub and he goes, Eureka! Because he came to understand the principles of buoyancy and displacement, stuff I don't understand, but he certainly did. So they looked around and they said, there's an order to all the things we see around us. That must mean that there is an order to the universe. And if there is an order to the universe, then that must mean that human beings somehow fit into that order. And if human beings fit into the order of the universe, and we can figure out what that, how we fit into that order of the universe, we can figure out the meaning and purpose of our existence. Do you understand the logic? If we can find our place in it, then we can know why we're here. So Plato, the famous, you know, he's the philosopher about which philosophers say, in philosophy, there's Plato and everything else is a footnote. So this is obviously a very important philosopher, okay? He was alleged to have said, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Now, this is, very thought, this is very smart and very insightful, okay, guys? The Greeks were smart people. What they knew was this. In order for things to flourish, in order for things to thrive, you got to know, know what they're for. In order for things to flourish, in order for things to thrive, you got to know what they're for. If, because if, if things aren't able to do what they were made to do, they languish. Think about this, okay? When I was a kid, a uh, little kid, four, four years old, five years old, I think for Christmas or sometime, I got one of these toy um, tool benches, you know, plastic ones with, you, can, you could screw big fat screws and stuff, and you could hammer nails into fake wood and all that kind of stuff, right? And, and it came with this, like, really light, wimpy hammer, right? And you just whack that plastic nail, and nothing really happens, because there's not much oomph to it. But my mom had this very nice uh, set of silverware, and the handles on the knives were really nice and heavy, so one morning, I get up early, and I go downstairs, and I'm playing with my toy, and I'm like, this, is, this, this hammer sucks. I know what I'll do. I walked over to my mom's silverware set. I grabbed one of the knives. I flipped it around, and I grabbed the, the knife part, and I just started bashing that nail with the handle as hard as I could, and wow, did it ever smack those nails down great. But it also put all kinds of dents in the knife. Because that's not what the knife was for. I was not using it for what it was for. And what I ended up doing was I ended up ruining the knife. Kind of ruined myself too. Because when my mom got up, I got in really, really big trouble. If you try to cook a steak with an iron, you're going to get a really lousy steak and you're going to have a ruined iron as well. If you use something for what it's for, if you know what the tool is for, that thing can thrive. Have are any of you like me, you, you're not super handy, 
And so you don't really buy all the right tools to do the stuff around the house that you're supposed to have in order to do the stuff around the house that needs to be done. And so you're constantly taking something and using it as something. I like to use knives as screwdrivers because I can't find the, the right head for the, screw dry, uh, for the screw that I need to screw in. So I just grab a knife and I start twisting. I start twisting. The next thing you know, I ruin the end of the knife. This is what we're talking about. The Greeks understood that, okay? And they were arguing all the time about what is this organizing principle of life that can give meaning, or of the universe, I should say, that can give meaning to our lives. And they were arguing and arguing and arguing. And by the time of Jesus' day, the Greeks had kind of come to the conclusion that there was no organizing principle to the universe. There was no actual organizing order to the universe. I guess there are no answers. Everything is relative. And it led them to despair. Because it left them on their own to try to figure out how do we make meaning out of life and how do we make meaning out of, out of our existence. Does it sound familiar to you guys? Does it not sound like the world we're living in right now? There is no absolute truth. There is no organizing principle. There is no, no certainty, no rhyme or reason to the craziness that we've been experiencing these last 18 months. There's, there's nothing to it. It's just madness. Who ever thought that you would watch the news and see images of horrific flooding and the damage to infrastructure and, and it was in Canada that you saw this happening? And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the things, the craziness that we've been experiencing these last years. And people, people are discovering, they're saying to themselves, there is no organizing principle. There is no logos. And enter the Apostle John into the fray. And he says, you're all looking for the logos. Here he is. It's Jesus Christ. That organizing principle is knowable, and it's Him. The question of Plato has been answered. Remember, it may be that someday there will come forth from God a word, a logos, who will reveal all mysteries and make everything plain. Yes! God sent the logos that made everything plain, and His name is Jesus. And here's the most remarkable thing about it, okay? This organizing principle, this logos, this answer to our biggest questions is not just a set of principles, it's not just a set of dogmas, it's not just a philosophy or a system of thought, it's a person. It's not just cold principles to live by and, and say, I will stake my life on these ideas. No, it's a person that you can know, that you can interact with, that you can argue with, that who you can speak to and who will speak to you. You can have a relationship with the organizing principle of the universe. This is the most remarkable thing about it. Now listen, let me, let me explain why this is the most remarkable thing about it. Stick with me here. The question that they're wrestling with is, what is the meaning of life? What's the point of it all? 
Why are we here? For what purpose do you live and breathe? That's the question that they're wrestling with. And you cannot live without an answer to that question. Thinkers down through the ages, and many of them not religious in any way, have said it is impossible to truly live without a purpose, without a meaning. The one who has made the most remarkable insights about that probably is a guy by the name of Viktor Frankl. Anybody heard that name before, Viktor Frankl? He's a a philosopher and a psychologist who actually uh, was in during World War II. He and his family were in concentration camps. He's Jewish and he was in concentration camps. He was in four different ones. The last one he ended up at was Auschwitz. And all his family was killed in gas chambers all, during World War II. And he came to discover something as he was living in these, in these, uh, in these concentration camps. And he said, you know, the people in these concentration camps who didn't have a purpose, who didn't have something to live for, they got sick faster, they got depressed quicker, and they died more quickly than people who had a reason to live. And that reason to live could be, I'm going to see my wife and kids again. That reason to live could be, you know, I'm, I'm going to be reunited with, uh, with my family. That, or, or that reason could be a religious reason. I am here to somehow weather this. God is going to use this to somehow reveal himself to me so that I can be in deeper relationship with him. Those kinds of people lived much longer and with more stability than those who had no meaning to life. And then when he went, uh, when he survived Auschwitz himself, and he survived World War II himself, he went on to be a psychiatrist. And in his practice and in his research, he discovered that people who don't have a meaning in life and who say that there really is no meaning in life and that we just have to create our own meaning in life, those people had higher addiction rates, higher rates of depression, much, much higher rates of suicide, much, much higher rates of health problems over the course of their lives. Because they didn't know why they're here. See, the principle, when you know what you're here for, then you can thrive. Then you can flourish, was demonstrated even in the work of people like Viktor Frankl. Now, let's say you, you finally agree and say, yes, you got to have a, person, a purpose for living. And you say, you know what? I think my purpose for living is I should make the world a better place. That's a good Mantra, that's a good motto. I'm here to make the world a better place. That's good. It, it engages the mind. It makes you think, well, what is a better place? What does a better place look like? And, and what must I do to help turn this world into a better place? It captures your mind and it may capture your imagination at least for a while, but, but does it capture your heart? It's a principle a good one, but it's a principle, an abstract idea. Can you love an idea? Can you say, I love Marxism? I love capitalism? I love socialism? I love Buddhism? Can you say that you love a set of ideas? Does that capture your heart? No. What captures your heart? Can you give your life, do you want to give your life, your whole being, to a philosophy? But a person, an actual personality who has 
cognition and who has feelings and who has thoughts and who has ideas, who wants to relate to you, who wants to be in relationship with you, who wants to, in this book, wants to tell you what his will for you is. And when you disagree, you say, I have a hard time believing that. And then he says, well, listen, I'm going to say this. And, and you keep reading. You say, yeah, but I say that. And then you keep reading and you see that he said this. And you can dialogue back and forth and you can be in loving relationship with him. And he says to you, look, you can trust me. You can know that I am here for you. You know that I want your good. You can know that I know what your life is meant to be about and you can give yourself to me because I have actually gone to the cross to die in your place, to take the penalty for your sin, to bear it on my shoulders so that you don't have to bear it and so you can trust me with your whole self. Amen. That's something you can give yourself to. It's so much richer and so much deeper and so much more satisfying than a simple philosophy. John says, the word, the organizing principle of life became flesh and he made his dwelling among us and we have seen his glory. See, Christianity is unique in all the world because Yes, it gives you truth as dogma, just like all other systems of thoughts do, but it gives you so much more. It gives you truth as a person. So you can't just just know about the Logos, you actually know the Logos himself. So in one word, In one word, John was appealing and pleading with both Jews and Greeks to recognize that the thing they were looking for all their lives was right there in the person of Jesus Christ. He is the author of life and he is the rationale of life and therefore he can tell you what life is for. He can tell you what you are for. When I was in university, I was an English major. It's the best best major. I mean, the job options are, you know, far and wide. There's so many options to when you're an English major. Yeah, I was an English major because I didn't really know why I was in university. I don't know why I went to any school, frankly, but I, I went to university. I wasn't sure why I was there. I knew I liked to read, and I figured, get a degree in reading books and then saying stuff about them, and if you're half decent at saying stuff about them, you get a pretty good mark. That was a pretty good deal to me, so I was an English major. And one day, we were discussing a short story that was written by a professor at my school. I went to Redeemer University. And uh, lo and behold, this professor came to class. So this is kind of weird, right? Like you're interpreting a story while the author is right there. And we are like waxing poetic, okay? the rabbit symbolized this and it was killed, which means it was this. And we're going on and on and just, you know, spinning out theories as far and wide as we could. And by the time we were done, the author who had been like nodding thoughtfully throughout the whole thing, he said, you know, uh, some of the things you said, you know, they're very close to what I intended. Absolutely. And some of the things you said are way out there. Let me tell you, what I meant when I wrote this story. And he told us. 
And what was so fascinating about it was, was as he told us, as we listened to him explaining what this story meant when he wrote it, all the parts made so much better sense to us. And of course, he has the right to tell us what he meant in writing the story because he's the author of the story. I know it's a very postmodern thing to have so-called reader-centered interpretation, but frankly, we all want to know what the author meant when they wrote what they wrote. And he gave it to us right then and there. And in the same way, Jesus says to you, this is what you're here for. You read through the Gospels, it's so interesting. Over and over and over, Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. You have heard it said, but I say to you. That's him saying, look, there have been authorities in the past who have told you this, but I'm telling you the absolute certain truth. And that means you can trust him. You can trust him for guidance in the midst of your life and the decisions that you are making. Did you know, friends, did you know that 90% of Americans say that to find yourself, to find your purpose, 90% of Americans, said to be the most Christian country on the planet, 90% of Americans say that to find yourself, you must look within. And Jesus says to you, to find yourself, you must look out. The last thing you want to do To find yourself is to look within. In fact, what you are supposed to do is you are supposed to deny yourself and you are supposed to die to yourself and you are supposed to live for me. It's the exact opposite. Our world says to us, look, evil things happen to us. All of us are victims of evil that comes from the outside. Jesus comes along and he says, you know, the vast majority of evil is bubbling up from within you. It's Christmas season. Black Friday, I love searching Black Friday deals, I have to admit, you know. I made money because I bought that at 50% off. But what happens during Black Friday and what happens during the Christmas season? The whole culture is telling us, we shop, therefore we are. (laughs) And Jesus says, oh, my foolish, foolish creatures, creations, don't you know that You should store up treasures not on earth where moth and rust can destroy, but in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy. We say, I shop, therefore I am. And Jesus says, don't buy it. What about sexuality and sexual identity these days? We have all kinds of voices telling us what to think about our sexuality, how to use it, what to think about our sexual identity, what it is, how to define it, etc. And you might say to yourself, well, I don't listen to any of those stories. I decide for myself. I decide what I'm going to do with my sexuality. Did you make you? How, How do you know? How do you know what you're made for? How do you know what to do with this powerful aspect of your deepest nature, your your sexual identity and your sexual orientation and your sexual urges? What are you supposed to do with that? And you may say, I make the decisions all myself, but you know that that's not true. You know if you're honest. You know you're being told by your social media feed and you're being told by uh, television shows and you're being told by the pundits and writers of... of, uh, 
the most uh, prestigious magazines and newspapers in the English-speaking language. They're telling you what you should believe. How do they know? They're just people like you. Jesus comes along and says, I'm the author. I created you. I made you. I made you exactly the way you were meant to be. And I know what you are to do with your deepest self. Give it to me. Give it to me. When you submit to that purpose and you give your deepest self to me, you will flourish. You will thrive. Now, You know, I said at the beginning, maybe the biggest question a person can ask is, who is Jesus? Well, if He is who He says He is, and ask yourself this, why do human beings long so desperately for a meaning for their existence? Why do we long for, for, for a, a purpose beyond just ourselves? Why is that in us? C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself a, a longing and a need that this world simply cannot satisfy, it is fair to think that perhaps I was made for another world. And Jesus punched a hole into this world to tell you Friends, you are not made for earth alone. You are made for heaven too. And if you give yourself to me, you will know a thriving and a flourishing and a peace that you could never ever know in any other way. Now, I will say the very last thing. I promise this is the last thing. Um, it's very... I understand how hard it is to trust. For some of you, it is incredibly hard to trust, to give yourself to someone. Not just because you don't want to look stupid and find out you were wrong, and you drank the Kool-Aid, and you're embarrassed. Not just because of that, but because you think that if you control your life, then somehow you can hold it together. I just want to tell you two things. One, there are people in this church who know from the very, very painful school of hard knocks that you are living an illusion. You control far less than you think you do. But secondly, go back to the principle the wonderful thing is that, that God didn't just send principles for us to trust ourselves to. He sent to us a person. Now, J.I. Packer does a great job of explaining the significance of this, and this is the last point. I've, I've said that three times now. He says it's the difference between GPS and a guide. Let's say you go to a beautiful city, let's say Amsterdam in Europe. It's considered one of the worst cities in the world to try to navigate. It's, it's a maze. Canals and stuff. Dikes, whatever. And let's say you get off the plane and you say, I want to go to the, I go to the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam. It's a very famous place. 
And so you get in a car and you get a rental car and you hit that GPS thingy and it says, turn right here, turn left here. And you turn right here and you turn left here and you're going and, and you thought you had, when you had done your research at home and checked on Google Maps, you thought it was supposed to be in that part of the city and this thing keeps taking you to this part of the city and, and you're, you're wondering whether it's right or it's wrong, but you can't really ask the GPS if it's right or it's wrong. And you say, well, is this, has this program been updated? Like what if there's a, 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 a traffic jam or what if there's a a part of the city where they're under construction and so the road's closed and then I can't actually get that way and then I'm screwed up and I don't know what to do and you, you can't really interact with that GPS and it creates a ton of anxiety. But what if you got off the plane and you hopped in a car and a guy got in beside you or a gal got in beside you and they said, hey, where do you want to go? You said, I'm looking to go to the Rijksmuseum. They say, I'll take you there, let's go. And you start going and they say, turn left here. Turn left here, turn right here, turn left here, turn right here. And you're going and, and, and they're taking you around as a, a, a weird way. And you, again, you looked at Google Maps and if you thought it was supposed to be over there. And you start saying, are you sure you know where you're going? They're, Don't worry, man. I was born and raised in this city. I know it like the back of my hand. I got this. And you're like, okay. And you keep going and you, you're going further away from the place that you want to go. And you say, hey, are, are, are we going in the right direction? And they say, trust me, there's... there's um, They've been working on this bridge over here for two years. You can't get in that way, so we got to go around that way. You go, okay, I get it, fine. And you keep driving along, and then you, you enter this, like, really sketchy kind of neighborhood, like one of those neighborhoods where you're supposed to, like, don't make eye contact with the people over there or over there. Just drive straight ahead, and you're like, hey, you know, should we be in this neighborhood? Don't worry, I grew up here. Oh, there's my, my nephew right there on the corner. Don't worry about it, I got you. And eventually they get you to the Reich's Museum. But all along, they said, trust me, trust me, trust me. They let you question. They let you doubt. They addressed your questions and addressed your doubts. But you still had to trust them in the end. But you had a relationship. This is what Jesus is for us. He's not just a GPS. He's the guide who's with us in the midst of the chaos we're living in right now. Indeed, he is the Logos. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the Logos. Thank you for Jesus. It is so hard to trust him at times. Oh, Holy Spirit, enable us to do it. Enable us to give ourselves to him. And not only to do what he says, but love him for who he is. In Jesus' name, amen.